I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is your weekly briefing for the week ending February 19th. The first theremin was built just over 100 years ago, and though it's never been the most popular instrument, it has maintained its allure, in part because there's nothing else that sounds quite like it, and in part for its distinction as one of the first, and still one of the very few, inherently electronic musical instruments, certainly the only one that is commonly played. This week, we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the theremin. We talk about the history of the instrument, how it works, and how to play it. Our guests today are Cyril Lance, the Chief Technical Officer of Moog Music, which has been making theremins for decades, and with Jonathan Siegel, a musician who's been playing the theremin for years. Siegel is probably best known as a member of one of the original indie rock bands, Camper Van Beethoven. Before we get to our conversations about the theremin, here's a quick rundown of some of the stories we have in EE Times this week. Automobile manufacturers want to make cars that can see and respond to other vehicles, pedestrians, and other objects. They need cars that have both image sensors and enough smarts to interpret what those image sensors are detecting. At the moment, vehicle designers are forced to make some hard choices, balancing the size and quality of image sensors against the processing power those sensors require. We've got a story about a California startup called Recogni, that is, developing a powerful AI processor that will support the most sophisticated sensors to minimize the trade-offs. The International Solid State Circuits Conference, ISSCC, is one of the most venerable forums for discussions about fundamental semiconductor technology. We have two articles from columnist Don Scanson reviewing some of the news, including a progress report on the leap from making chips at 5 nanometers to making them at 3. We also have an article on battery management systems, which are critical for the ongoing success of electric vehicles, this time for electric scooters. Another story on work on the next generation of cellular networking, 6G, and another on what might really be an unbreakable form of quantum-based data encryption. Find these and other stories at www.eetimes.com. If you're on our podcast webpage, there are links on your left. One hundred and one years ago, in 1920, Lev Sergeyevich Terman, a young Russian physicist, was conducting experiments with a piece of lab equipment that he'd built that incorporated several oscillators. For reasons that still aren't entirely clear, it occurred to him to hook up an audio circuit to his apparatus. When he moved anywhere near the equipment, it caused a change in frequency, which is to say, a change in pitch. Terman was not only a scientist, He was also a musician, a cellist. He quickly realized the device's potential not as a lab tester, but as a musical instrument. Before the end of that year, Terman was playing concerts with the device, which he originally called an etherphone. The instrument quickly became a sensation in Russia, at the time on its way to becoming the Soviet Union. Terman was subsequently sent on a tour through Europe to demonstrate his instrument. During this time, the names of the inventor and the invention both would change several times. Lev Terman would eventually become known as Leon Theremin, 
By 1928, when he applied for a U.S. patent, the instrument was also commonly being referred to as the theremin. Theremin had arrived in the U.S. in 1927, and he would reside in America for the next 11 years. In 1928, the year he applied for his U.S. patent, he gave a recital at the New York Philharmonic. RCA purchased a license to build the instruments. Symphonic compositions were written specifically for the theremin. A musician named Clara Rockmore adopted the instrument and was quickly recognized as a virtuoso player. Her performances would help popularize the theremin. Well, for a little while at least. The theremin is notoriously difficult to master, and for a while, right around World War II, the fascination with the instrument waned. Then, in the 1950s, a young engineer with an interest in electronic music began selling theremin kits that people could assemble themselves. Bob Moog's interest in the theremin would lead directly to the development of the iconic Moog synthesizer. Around the same time, Hollywood started churning out science fiction movies, and sound engineers found that the otherworldly quality of the instrument was perfect for films set in, well, other worlds. You can hear the theremin in Rocket Ship XM, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and The Thing from Another World. And it wasn't just science fiction. It was also used in mainstream flicks, such as the 1946 best picture, The Lost Weekend, and Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound. Don't forget this man. He has plenty to do with the terrifying mystery that causes this glamorous woman to risk her life and reputation in a reckless experiment. A woman who, because of her consuming love for this man, gambles everything to unlock the fearful secret in his heart. That was from the trailer for Spellbound. In the mid-1960s, the Beach Boys pulled the theremin firmly into pop music with good vibrations. The band didn't actually use a theremin. They used a similar instrument called an electrotheremin, and maybe you can see where the confusion comes from. After the Beach Boys, various pop stars began dabbling with the instrument and its variants. That included Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, Tom Waits, Jean-Michel Jarre, The Pixies, and Karen O oh from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. There's a growing handful of modern artists whose main instrument is the theremin, however. Many of the modern artists who play a theremin play instruments created by Moog Music, the company founded by theremin enthusiast Bob Moog. The company recently released a limited edition 100th anniversary deluxe model of the theremin called the Clarivox in honor of Clara Rockmore. Last week, I called up Moog Music CTO Cyril Lance and we had a discussion about all things theremin. My impression is, is that the theremin, to my knowledge, uh, the theremin and its variants are the only like true native electronic instruments. I mean, to your knowledge, is that is that the case? Well, I I think that there's a case to be made for that. And I will just preface it by saying I'm not an expert music instrument historian. Um, but I think it's an interesting mm. thing to discuss because um, it does, you are getting to one of the roots about what makes the theremin such a unique instrument and and perhaps why it has held this, you know, now 100-year captivation with artists um, and also technologists. Um, and I think 
I'll paraphrase for you a little bit where, why I think you make that statement in that, um, like in a classical synthesizer, um, you are um, activating your sounds by some kind of mechanical interface. And that mechanical interface is often, often a, a keyboard, keyboard yeah. um, buttons, knobs, um, what what have you, and um, so you you are having kind of a you're triggering sounds, whether the sounds are created by analog oscillators and filters or whether they're triggered uh, via digital sound processes. And then um, the other, um, so uh, the theremin works on a, on a very different principle. And then I'm going to kind of show you where some of the boundaries blur in a second where is the theremin, and I think it's worth kind of going back just a little bit of the history and, and the fundamentals of the instrument to understand that. Um, Lev Theremin was actually a physicist from Russia. Um, he grew up in, in the late 1800s, and then really his work as an electronic instrument designer kind of blossomed in the um, 20s. And um, his life is fascinating. We can, we can talk about that more later. But the important thing is that he was working at a time when the understanding of electromagnetism was really coming into its own um, and the transition from thinking of electric energy passing through some kind of medium called the ether um, transition to the whole idea of, of electromagnetic propagation through waves and um and also uh, the invention of the vacuum tube and then being able to make electronic oscillators, um, which were the combination of an inductor and capacitor. And, and the basics, the basic of those is that inductors and capacitors kind of store and release energy um, 180 degrees out of phase. So these electric oscillators were, were given a little bit of energy and then they would kind of pass back and forth their energy. And then that created an electronic oscillation. And, and these were used these were the fundamentals of early communication, but they were also the fundamentals of understanding um, our world in, in terms of being a physicist. So Lev Theremin was doing experiments in, <clears throat> at the time, I believe in X-ray spectroscopy, which was the study of um, using X-rays to, to study the, um, the physics of, of crystal structures. <clears throat> and he was using these high-frequency oscillators to, to um, study these wavelengths um, and the diffraction patterns based on these wavelengths. And um, uh, one of the fundamental principles of uh, radio was by heterodyning two oscillators. So you take two oscillators that are very close together and you add them or you mix them and they create the sum of the frequencies or the difference of the frequencies. And so he had these high-frequency oscillators that were heterodyning. And of course, the sum was up near a megahertz because these were around 300 to 500 kilohertz. But the difference was in the audio range. And so he's using that audio signature to learn about these uh, crystalline structures. And then I think serendipity or accidentally. Oh, so, yeah. so the idea was, was that he was, he added a, an audio circuit so that he had an audio indication of what was happening with the waveforms. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
And again, so so it was real. It was real serendipity. It was serendipity, but it was also the fact that he was a musician, and he immediately, you know, I think as he moved around the experiment, the the audio would change, mm-hmm. and he realized that his body was part of this new instrument, and he called all his physics buddies in and said, "Check this out." And then he tried to play, I think, the Swan or something. And everybody's like, that's great. You got to make an electronic instrument out of this. And um, he then uh, figured out how to make it better. And then he took it to to Lenin, who was transfixed. And now this was all involved in the uh, Russian Revolution and early communism. And they thought it was amazing. And then they sent him off to Germany to get patents to kind of show off the new Soviet Union's technical prowess. And then he was sent to the United States actually as as a spy but under the auspices of this instrument. And um, then he you know, was in, the, in with Gershwin in New York in the Roaring Twenties, and, and the instrument took on its history from there. But moving back to the fundamentals of the instrument, what, what was the principle that allowed you to become part of that instrument? And, and the principle was that um, you have these, these, these oscillators and, you know, if we think of a fixed oscillator and a fixed capacitor and enough energy to keep that oscillation going, you have a fixed frequency. But if you change the, the, the characteristics of either the capacitor or the inductor, your frequency is going to change. And your body has, a, has a, a capacitance because you're connected to ground and you're a di- you know, you, there's a dielectric and just like any other capacitor... So you are actually a capacitor in, 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 <laughs> oh, in, cool. the, in the actual oscillator. So the thing that makes the theremin so intriguing is actually the human body is part of the actual electronic circuit. So, so that is really interesting. And then the volume is a similar thing, but instead of um, using a heterodyne oscillator, he used rectification, which was another um, you know, fundamental uh, way to control AM radio amplitude modulation, where you um, rectified a signal, and and the oscillator amplitude increased and decreased depending on its efficiency coupling with the antenna. You rectified that, and then you got amplitude out of that. So he used these very basic fundamentals uh, uh, circuits of you know um, heterodyne oscillators and rectified oscillators, and. In both cases, your hands become variable capacitors. So on the pitch oscillator, as you move further and and farther away from the antenna, your effective capacitance uh, changes in the circuit as you interact with the electromagnetic field of the instrument, and you're changing the frequency of that oscillator. And then that be, gets heterodyne. The difference of those two frequencies becomes audio. So you're actually hearing, and that's why the instrument is so incredibly sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so your body movements, even just you know, like a sixteenth of an inch, has a dramatic change in pitch, and and then volume. Likewise, you have this incredible dynamic range. And what's really uncanny about this invention was, we if we put ourselves back a hundred years ago, you know, uh, classical music was also having a revolution at the time you know, with um, new ideas from Dvorak up to Shostakovich and, and um, Schoenberg and, you know, um, but the dynamics of classical music were still really paramount, unlike today where music tends to be very compressed. But the theremin 
a hundred years ago, he developed an instrument that had this incredible pitch sensitivity and incredible dynamic sensitivity that, that, which is really remarkable that, and it was a, a very simple concept, but making it into a truly musical instrument was a real art form. And that's kind of what he dedicated his early life to. And it was really the first, it, it, it is the first commercially made electronic instrument. RCA made them. Um, they, they started making them, unfortunately, right before the um, great stock market crash that led to the depression. So um, uh, it is a really unique story and a really unique instrument. And I think one of the reasons it's so captivating to play is that you, you're, your level of connectedness to the sound is like when, you know, direct, it's direct, right? You are part of the instrument. And I think people feel that viscerally. It also makes it incredibly hard to play because your tiny, your breath, it's a very biophysical experience, right? Your Mm. breath, your, the way you hold your head, the way your body unconsciously moves all affects the sound and the expression that you're making. It's almost like a meditation or something. So it's fascinating. Well, that's uh, that was supposedly one of the the unique capabilities of uh, Clara Rockmore. Is that her name? Yes, Clara. Yeah, uh, who who was the first um, who was the first uh, uh, theremin virtuoso? Yes, and supposedly one of her her unique characteristics as an artist was that she she had this innate understanding that the most minuscule of motions has an effect on on the music and uh i've seen some some stills i've never seen video but i understand that she was able to hold herself rock still she had extraordinary control over her own her own instrument her body yeah, absolutely. I mean, Claire Rockmore is is a great piece of the story um, for a number of reasons. Um, one, as you said, she was the first theremin virtuoso and is still held, held today by every theremin player you meet as the kind of standard of, of virtuosity and, and is still a real like... Um, the Caruso of theremin, right? So yeah, uh, the, ver- a, yeah, the person the that you, yeah, the person that you want to play if you're playing in that style. Now we'll get into kind of modern theremin players and and all the stuff that people are doing so creatively. Maybe a little later in the interview, but she brought her classical violin virtuosity to the theremin. Lev needed Clara Rockmore to really make his instrument what he dreamed it to be. And Clara Rockmore needed Lev to create the instrument she needed. So it's this beautiful example of the collaborative evolution of instruments. And this has happened over all of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's wonderful that there's this explicit example of this in these very early electronic instrument um, that became, you know, became this, this instrument that has just had this incredible history. Over the years, uh, I've seen variations of the theremin. The first one's very simple. I've got a buddy of mine who had like a theremin in a box. He built one real simple. It has like a, just a couple of dials in the in the two aerials. Um, but I've also seen pictures of um, the Clarivox, the uh, the the hundredth anniversary version of the theremin that your company 
uh, put out a limited edition of, and uh, that had um, perhaps a half a dozen dials and sliders. Um, what uh, over the years can you do uh, to to uh, add to or modify a theremin to to change how uh, you know how it's played or what you can do with it? There, I think the original theremin actually only had a pitch antenna. And, and um, Lev had a foot pedal for volume. Mm. And there's been some other theremins along the way that other people built that really just focused on pitch. Um, but um, very quickly, Lev added the volume a- antenna and, and that became the classic configuration and the theremin configuration that most people have developed over the years. And there have been other people that had developed theremins and there still are a lot of theremin innovators out there that make their own theremins and do all and and really innovate and experiment with them so one of the great things about the theremin community which i which i really appreciate is a lot of these musicians and artists are also very technological i would say technologically motivated and a lot of them have spent a lot of time studying the instruments studying the old instruments the newer instruments developing new ideas. And um, as music has changed, so has how people are using the instrument. So nowadays, instruments are being used in pop music and in experimental electronic music. They're used as controllers. You know, Jimmy Page famously used it in Led Zeppelin, um, you know, and, 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 um, you know, they're used in film and, and the Thurman community has really exploded over the, maybe the last 10, 20 years. So the types of music and the types of vision from all these incredible artists has really expanded too. And, and, and that's how we get to the Clarivox. But um, I think it's good to talk, to bring Bob Moog into the story here um, because he dedicated- I'll allow it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for permission. Um, he, <laughs> is a huge part of the story of the theremin. Um, yeah. Because he, as a teenager, read an article, I believe it was in um, Radio Electronics Magazine or Popular Electronics or one of those that um, showed a circuit about how you could build your own tube theremin. And back then, of course, tubes, this was pre-transistors. Right. And Bob was, a, 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 you know, a teenager, you know, loved physics and his dad loved to tinker and... and um, they decided to build a theremin and, and, and Bob was just completely enthralled with this instrument. And they started building them and then selling parts and selling uh, kits. So even as a teenager and then into early college, theremin was really Bob's first love. This is way before he started Moog Music. Um, you know, he went to, um, uh, I think I believe it was Columbia and got an electronic engineering degree. And then he went to ended up at Cornell and got an engineering and applied physics degree. Um, and he, I, th- I think he was also did his thesis on spectroscopy um, and um, crystal spectroscopy of some sort. And, um, but all the while he was developing theremins and selling them. Uh, and um, so he built a number of models um, in the 50s and 60s that basically were very traditional but different takes. Mm-hmm. There were small ones. And then, of course, in the 50s, there was another huge technological shift, which was going from tubes to transistors. You know, quantum mechanics right. led to 
um, solid-state physics, which led to crude transistors, which led finally to commercialized transistors. And what commercialization of transistors allowed was electronics got smaller. Um, you didn't have to have these huge transformers and all this tube circuitry, which also requires very high lethal voltages. So now you could create theremins that were smaller and people could make without having the kind of expertise that you needed with tube stuff. So um, Bob kind of took tube theremins and and kind of transistorized them, which made, made the instruments much more portable and um, reliable, really. And, and so um, he had a bunch of small ones, and they're all beautiful instruments and all have different things. But the theremin, you know, you had two, two basic controls, which was your pitch sensitivity, which controlled mm-hmm. where in your hand motion the pitch was, and your, fo- mm-hmm. and your volume sensitivity, which which both um, controlled how loud an instrument got, but also how fast. So if you needed to play really fast articulations, oh, okay. you could adjust the sensitivity so it, it changed very quickly, or if you wanted to do very slow movements. So um, you had a volume knob and a pitch knob, but um, you know you eventually added things like tone, Mm-hmm. And 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 um and 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 that that kind of thing. So there were a lot of versions of the theremin that Bob made. However, um, I think important to your question is, eventually Bob got interested in expanding the vocabulary of the theremin, and um, I believe it was the '90s. He he embarked on a, a um, he'd already done some very creative things with theremins along the way. But he decided he wanted to make a theremin that that interfaced through MIDI, but also had alternative sound sources. And this was a project called the Ethervox. And it and for for the listeners, MIDI was a digital protocol developed in the eighties for the synthesizer instrument community, so that synthesizers of different manufacturers could talk to each other. So when you right. hit a key on 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 an Oberheim, it could trigger a key on a Roland or a Moog, and and um, it's still in use today. It's an incredibly successful um, example of an in- industry standard protocol. Um, and so Bob wanted to create a theremin that could also talk to other synthesizers and instruments. And so that's what the MIDI interface was, which meant you had to digitize this information, um, pitch and volume. Uh, additionally, he added the part of the story I just left out was that Bob then created Moog synthesizers and, and, and collabed with Herb Deutsch and created the analog subtractive synthesizer, which is voltage controlled. And that's really what Bob is known for in the music world, the mini Moog right. and the big modular synthesizers. Well, he took one of those um, analog oscillators and put it inside of the Ethervox. So the Ethervox could play as a traditional theremin, listening to the actual um, heterodyned output or it could also have an analog oscillator tracking that pitch. So now you had a, a hybrid instrument that could interface digitally and control other things digitally, but had the original theremin and an additional analog oscillator. And then and then tone so control cool. and wave shaping, which were ideas brought in from uh, his synthesizers. Right. Um, he, I... I believe they only made like a hundred of those instruments. They were beautiful. And there's some theremin artists out there that still use them and they're very unique. Um, Pamela 
Pamela Stickney is an artist nowadays who um, really championed that instrument. The reason I bring that up is that is really the, the heritage from Lev Theremin's theremin mm -hmm. to Bob's creation of the Ethervox, which led to the Clarivox, which was developed over the last two years by the team at Moog Music. And the vision of the Clarivox was to create a virtuosic theremin that could satisfy a large range of classical theremins to kind of modern electronic musicians. So the idea that, that Moog undertook was to envision an instrument that is larger than just the hardware. And there's a whole software component to the instrument. And that software can run on your iPhone, your iPad, your, your computer. And it can be connected by Bluetooth or it can be connected by a USB MIDI, just a standard USB cable to your computer or to um, your other mobile devices. So that the full embodiment of the instrument's sound engine is the sum of the actual hardware and a software environment. And the mm -hmm. software is really intuitive and just allows you to do all these things that theremin players could never dream of doing. So the idea of the Clarivox is to open the doors of the instrument really for, for the next century of, of theremin artists and allow them to expand their sonic vocabularies, allow them to really tailor the response of the instrument to really fit their playing styles, whether it's, mm -hmm. and, and even with from song to song, to and then to also to really integrate their theremin technique into the larger electronic music environment. So if you're playing with sequences, it can be all be synced, or you can have your instrument arpeggiate in sync with another electronic instrument. Now, some theremin players don't want to do that. So the Clarivox, its simplicity yeah. stands on its own and you can play it as a traditional theremin, whether you're a classical musician or whether you're a beginner. You've been listening to Cyril Lance, Chief Technical Officer of Moog Music. We've got links on the page so you can go take a look at the 100th anniversary theremin called the Clarivox, which Lance pointed out was developed in collaboration with several major musicians, notably theremin artists Dorit Chrysler, Pamela Stickney, and Gregoire Blanc. For anyone interested in trying out a theremin themselves, Lance recommended another instrument produced by Moog, a small version of the theremin called the Theremini. When we first got the idea to dedicate a podcast to the 100th anniversary of the theremin, we were determined to get someone who actually plays the thing on the show. We were pleased when a mutual friend put us in touch with Jonathan Siegel, a multi-instrumentalist who's been playing professionally since the early 1980s. That's when Siegel and some friends in California got together as Camper Van Beethoven, one of the early faves on what would become known as the independent music scene. They were noted for their sense of exploration that cut across musical genres and the occasional bit of off-kilter goofiness that led to some great cuts such as Let's Take the Skinheads Bowling and Joe Stalin's Cadillac. The band splintered, however, and then after a long hiatus, reformed, but many of the members have always had side projects. In fact, Siegel reminded me that Camper Van Beethoven started out as a side project. Siegel continues to play solo and with other bands, including the Orisoned Space Collective. This is the group that he plays a lot of theremin with. 
We called him in Sweden, where Siegel has recently been residing. He explained that he first heard of the theremin in a class he took in college with Gordon Mumma, a composer known for his interest in electronic music. So you're in this class, you've, uh, you're, you're being introduced to a lot of different types of electronic music and, and how uh, electronic instruments themselves developed. Uh, heard about the theremin, but didn't get a chance to actually touch one, right? No, and 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 of course, then we heard the you know the famous recordings of Clara Rockmore and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, and then when we finally did get into the studio to work, um, in the studio we had a Buchle and we had a Moog modular system. So I started working with the with the synthesizers there, and starting to understand you know waveforms and envelopes and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. um, and of course doing a lot of music concrete with tape music and that sort of thing. So subsequently, anyway, I got, uh, my music world went off into the Camper Van Beethoven world. So I was playing a lot of violin and electric guitar and, um, and organ, uh, on a Casio. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then at some point Camper was hired to do, uh, more, this is even more recently, it's probably about 10, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. we got hired to do music in Chicago at a TEDx ex, uh, talk right. series so in order to do something interesting i we thought why don't i just get a theremin and i'll just learn how to play the um you know the melodies for some of our songs on theremin easy peasy right well, yeah easy peasy right <laughs> i play violin i can play a fretless instrument but of course then you know practicing for two weeks beforehand i was like oh my god <laughs> this instrument is very difficult so sub- subsequently it's taken me a while to uh, you know, get it under my hands a little bit yeah. to make it not just sound like sound effects. I mean, a lot of a lot of the use of theremin is sound effects, of course. But uh, you know, right now I've seen uh, so so I've seen um, Steve. I'm not even sure if I'm going to pronounce his name right. Steve Nave from Elvis Costello's mm-hmm. band. He yeah. used to carry one out on uh, on stage and and uh, on a couple of uh, Elvis Costello tours and. Mm-hmm. Um, Seemed to have at least some control, but again, it was mostly effects for the bridge. Um, how did you find going from, um, how, what were your expectations and, and, and when you move from instruments that you're touch and feel, you know, a violin or a guitar and moving to something that, uh, that you don't physically it, it, touch? That you don't physically touch. There's a there's a funny thing about playing an instrument where you are are. Uh, I, I'm going to go back I- into this same that same world where I was uh, studying electronic mm-hmm. music. I started taking violin lessons again when I was 18. I had stopped throughout high school uh, and played only the electric guitar. So when I started playing violin again, I thought oh, I, I I should probably take take lessons. Mm-hmm. And so I took I took lessons from a guy named Roy Milan at UC Santa Cruz, who was the um, principal in the opera orchestra in San Francisco. And the first thing that I learned, number one, was watching him play. He was super relaxed about what he was doing. His body didn't tense up when he was holding the instrument. And so that was that was a very important thing. The other thing was, I realized that there's an amount of gesture to playing a musical instrument that if you look like you know what you're doing, oftentimes your body reacts in a way that it actually does the right moves. So mm-hmm. I, I've been 
I've been, uh, I started practicing violin this way where it was like, well, if I look like I know how to play the violin. And what's weird about that is that the more you put your body into those shapes that you've seen a person do, uh, the more it actually sounds like you're the person that's playing the instrument, you know, and, and, um, with violin, there's an awful lot of gesture, the, you know, to moving your arms mm-hmm. and 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 uh, st- and shaking your fingers and and doing tr- uh, um, vibrato and and things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And so and so in in, uh, in moving to an instrument like theremin, where you don't actually touch it, one of the things that I was prepared to do was just to hold my hand still. Mm. And learn how to how to measure like the distance from the uh, antenna, the pitch antenna or the volume antenna, so that I could just hold it still and make it the actual pitch that I wanted to do. But what I found when I first started doing it was that I almost involuntarily you move right your hand right. So so it's very difficult to hold still and hold the pitch. However. If you start to do a little bit of actual vibrato with your hand, it starts to sound more like a musical instrument. And then I realized if you actually watch people that are playing the theremin, they're they're performative in a way. Mm-hmm. Like the way that they're moving their hands is very performative and it's very gestural about the sound that they're making. And the more that you are sort of making those dance-like gestures with your arms, the more it actually is actually is sounding like it looks. It's a very it's a very strange sort of sort of thing, but it helps a lot. That, it helps a lot in getting the right pitch, and that's sort of yeah. Thing. That's very interesting because I've seen um, I've seen some video of Clara Rockmore, who seemed to have an uncanny facility to hold absolutely still. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, even just trying to stand next to the instrument and hold one mm-hmm. pitch still, it's very very difficult. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's incredibly, and and the and the instrument itself is very sensitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're you're talking about millimeters of of, of motion. Right. So, actually, sort of shaking your hand and shaking your volume hand a little bit gives a little bit of a tremolo and a little bit of a vibrato. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And you can sort of you can sort of do them opposite or together. So uh, <laughs> earlier, you had made a comment that. Oftentimes in music, uh, the use of a theremin is for a sound effect. Um, well, I mean, yeah. f- I, th- I think that the first time I ever saw it, now that I, now that I uh, think about it, was uh, Jimmy Page in The Song Remains the Same, right. waving his hands in Whole lot of Love or something and having the theremin with a uh, echoplex. It's classic, a classic song. Absolutely, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. How about yourself when you so you would you were telling the story about how um uh you ted had hired camper van beethoven to play right. uh, and and you were inspired to pick up the the uh the theremin there uh that was your introduction to it um were you intending to do you were intending to do something melodic with it as opposed to yes you know just throwing in an arpeggio in the bridge or what have you it was it yeah no. My my intention was to was to learn uh, the Camper Van Beethoven, some of our instrumentals, mm-hmm. the melodies that I usually would play on violin, yeah. and I I did I learned how to f- play a few of them, and we did we used it on tour yeah. for a few years. Oh, neat. it's um, it's interesting because uh, I think in the in Theremin's patent, 
um, he actually remarks that that it sounds like a violin. And, mm-hmm. and I've heard some of the old classic compositions um, where it sounds like the composer is is um, thinking of a violin and throwing a theremin in there. Um, mm-hmm. Do you still think of the theremin that way, or or have you have you f- figured out new ways to 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 make music I, with I've- it? I feel like it's its own thing, definitely. Yep. I mean, it's like once once I figured out that uh, the way that you move your hands and the way that you uh, face the instrument and approach the instrument, your 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 interaction with it is so different than other instruments mm-hmm. that uh, that it it's prepared to make its own sound. Also, you know, I mean, it has its own waveform, mm-hmm. which is which is somewhat adjustable. Like I have the Moog Etherwave. Um, or one that's maple in a maple box, mm-hmm. you know, but it's an ether wave theremin and it has an adjustable, uh, waveform, but it seems to be, it's, it seems like it goes from a sawtooth, um, perhaps facing one with the ramp one direction to a sawtooth the other direction. So it sort of sweeps through a triangle wave mm. it, as you change it, but it's pretty buzzy. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pretty buzzy sound. And, and so I like, um, having an AB box so I can put it through my guitar pedals. Right. I mean, because an echo is, is absolutely, you know, where it's at with the theremin <laughs> <laughs> and a phase shifter. I mean, you can't go wrong. So as a result, I've ended up using it as a, as a completely separate instrument to do melodic things and to do sound effects sorts of things. And there's a lot of uh, weird sorts of idiosyncrasies to the theremin. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, um if you're if you're depending on um how you've set the pitch knob mm-hmm. because the way that, the way that you set it has to do with like rolling it off so that its lowest tone as you've backed away from the instrument is is uh below the range of he- of human hearing mm-hmm. because you can also like roll that knob up so that it's constantly making a tone right a low tone. And then as you get near it, of course, it'll go up, but you want to roll that, that pitch off so that it's essentially not making a waveform, uh, that's fast enough to hear anymore. And, and so, um, as you come closer to it, you know, the, the, the pitch goes up and the volume goes up as you, as you, uh, get your hand closer to it. So you can do sorts of things like that. But as you move your fingers, I I have a tendency to, uh, pinch, Mm -hmm with my first finger and my thumb to make an exact point where the pitch is, like how close that is to the antenna. Yeah. And I found also, if you get really close to the antenna, if you touch it, 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 it's the highest note. Oh, uh. right. It, it jumps, it jumps to a little beep. So you can get closer and then you can beep and you can tap out little Morse code rhythms on the antenna itself or pull away. And get. So there's all sorts of different little weird idiosyncrasies you can use for uh, either melodic or um, sort of sound effecty sort of oh, thing. Wow. It's, I mean, I mean, it sounds like part of the fun of playing it is discovering, discovering what you can do with it still. Right. Definitely. I think, I think definitely. And also it's like how you're feeling, you know, how your hands are moving, mm-hmm. Like if you're waving your volume hand and, and you're nervous and it's like waving really fast, your uh, your tremolo 
your volume control is going to be going, ah, you know, so, but you can control that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you can control, make it have more of a vocal quality. Um, earlier you mentioned, you, you alluded to this. I just wanted to ask about it uh, specifically playing it and the movement. Um, I have seen some, some theremin players, uh, it, looks as if they're dancing with the absolutely absolutely i feel i feel like it is it invites you to like move near it Mm -hmm. and then you have to do the this specific dance with your arms mostly but yeah but you sort of have to move in and out of the of the of the world of its uh its electronic its capacitance that that it you know that it's sensing That was musician Jonathan Siegel. One of his more recent collections of music is titled Superfluity. We've got a link on the webpage where you can take a look. Also on the webpage, we've got a YouTube video of one of the songs from that collection so you can listen to it, along with clips from theremin players over the years playing in different styles. If you want to find out more about theremin himself, Cyril Lance recommends a biography called Theremin, Ether Music and Espionage. It's by Albert Glinsky. There's a link to that on the webpage, too. Where's the espionage? Well, Theremin's life was eventful. After living in the United States for over a decade, Theremin ended up back in the Soviet Union. One story was that the Soviets kidnapped him and brought him back. Another is that he deliberately ran away from financial debts. Either way, once back in the USSR, he helped build some of the most effective spyware of the era including a listening device called The Thing, which the Soviets hid inside a wooden replica of the Great Seal of the United States and, in 1945, presented to the U.S. ambassador. The U.S. ambassador had it placed in his residential office, where it went undiscovered for seven years. Many years later, after the Cold War ended, Theremin once again ventured out of the country, including a visit to New York in 1991, during which he met with Clara Rockmore one last time. He died in Moscow in 1993. That is a wrap for the weekly briefing for the week ending February 19th. Thank you for listening. The clips of Dorit Chrysler and of the Orsund Sound Collective in this episode were used with permission of the artists. The music you're hearing right now is Siegel playing the theremin with the Orsund Space Collective on the band's release called Four Riders Take Space Mountain. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by EE Times. 
It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.